This is Box to Box with Bob Gilbert and Derek Dyson. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to another World Cup edition of Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson to run the rule over the past week in the World Game. All the World Cup and other news with Willem van Denderen on the line from Doha shortly, including the latest on the resurgent Socceroos in Qatar ahead of their date with the Danish Dynamite on Thursday morning our time, plus the latest on the Matildas at home and abroad, who in what we hope will be an omen for the men's side, beat the Danes a little over a month ago to signal the turning of the corner for Tony Gustafsson's side. But it's all eyes on Graham Arnold's squad, who less than a week ago were licking their wounds after a Kylian Mbappe-led onslaught sucked the life out of the Socceroos World Cup campaign, made worse by the knowledge that their next date was against the Tunisian side, who'd earned a hard-fought point against the Danish in front of a raucous crowd dominated by the support of the Eagles of Carthage. But it wasn't the North Africans who emerged with the spoils. Rather, in a Saturday night Antipodean celebration across the globe, led by Mitchell Duke and Harry Sutar at either end of the Al Janoub Park. Australia brushed aside their critics at home and in the self-described traditional homes of football to win the day and set up a blockbuster 2am fixture that we all hope will take us back to the joyful memories and middle-of-the-night heroics in Kaiserslautern and Stuttgart back in 2006. And while I did say all, that is, of course, all Australians because there will be some very nervous Danes gathering at 4pm at local time in City Hall Square in Copenhagen and in northeastern India. Who knows a man who knows Australia all too well? And I speak, of course, of former Adelaide United and Melbourne City man Michael Jakobsen, who will join us from the home, his new home in the Indian Super League, as he anxiously watches at a far more respectable hour of 8:30 p.m. Michael has been a wonderful guest for us over the years, and in his own dry Danish style in the A League, he always was ready to talk up, and will do for a massive night for both countries. Then, in one of the great ironies of the tournament, it's a first-round winning team who who were on top of the world after flogging Iran, but thudded back to earth with an uninspiring draw against the USA, which has led to all sorts of navel-gazing. I speak, of course, of England, and one man who has always called it as he sees it with Gareth Southgate's squad is the Times' Henry Winter, who will join us to dissect what he's seen so far and prognosticate on whether the three Lions can regroup and make a charge through the knockout stages of the tournament. And we'll wrap it up with World Cup Corner, including a fireside chat while I'm had with my regular co-host, Michael Edgley, now host hundreds of happy green and gold fans in the Gulf. Derek, what a week it's been from one extreme to the other. Um, and um, you watched uh, the Socceroos play Tunisia in very salubrious surroundings, uh, if I recall correctly. Yes, uh, Rob, I was in a shed in Hillsville. I uh, was chatting to a local builder who saw my Arsenal memorabilia on the wall and clocked that I was a bit of a football fan and, and got the invite and looking to ingratiate myself into the local community. I decided to go along at nine o'clock to quite a raucous um, raucous shed party. Uh, lots of people there, big projector on the screen. It wasn't quite the scenes that we saw in Fed Square, but not far off when the uh, goal went in from, from Mitch Duke. And uh, look, I was pretty relaxed watching the second half. I didn't feel like the Tunisians were, were going to come into it. I'm sure Willem... Uh, over in the stands there maybe felt slightly differently but I always felt Australia has sort of had them at arm's length and, and obviously a cracking result and as you said we'll set up that that group side with Denmark uh, coming forward. And Willem uh, I'm watching you there nodding your head uh, eagerly away as Derek said it felt a little bit uh, different in the stands mate uh, how's your past well we, we recorded the show a little later in the week last week so it's been a little less than a week just tell us what the atmosphere was like inside the stadium because, uh, as Derek said, that uh, uh, the scenes that we saw from Federation Square in Melbourne were a good example of what was going on around the rest of Australia. Um, I think we'd probably have to assume that it had ramped up another level uh, amongst the green and gold fans in the midst of the Tunisian onslaught. Yeah, it was primarily uh, it was a primarily Tunisian crowd, Robin. Apparently there was a bit of uh, argy-bargy. They weren't too uh, happy after the uh, game, but no, that was that was something I'll never forget. For the Socceroos to win a game in a World Cup, you can't just sort of put it together and breeze through. It's always going to have to be a heroic performance. And I can think of five five names off the top of my head, probably Ryan, uh, Suta, Irvine, Moy, Duke. There's there's five um, all just cemented their statuses. I mean, I don't think it's an overstatement to say the words legends because these wins come around so rarely to be at the forefront of them and to put in a performance like that. 
and the way that they they went out and I took the uh, the Mick out of Graham Arnold Rob saying they didn't fight like eleven boxing kangaroos, but they did in the first twenty five minutes. They went out there and they they took the game on their own terms, took it to win it, got the goal, uh, played I think at a, a pretty balanced uh, balanced level across the rest of the first half, stayed on the front foot despite having something to hold, and then in the second half uh, for fifty minutes all hands on deck uh, defended uh, magnificently. And if I have one regret, it's that I actually didn't see Harry Sutar's. Uh, Harry Sutar's tackle. I uh, had my my head in my hands when I saw Kai <laughs> Rolls just collapse from exhaustion. I thought, no, nah, I can't watch this. And then oh, uh, no. all the Aussie fans around me went up and I couldn't believe that Sutar was pulling himself off the deck and just calmly rolling off towards the left flank to play the ball. So a magnificent day. Tell us more because uh, you've got it all ready to go, mate. Um, so uh, so give us the news locally and the rest of the news of the week, mate. Well, the equation is simple. Win and we're through. Lose and we're out. Draw and we might still get there unless Tunisia uh, upset France. And as we record, there's still a couple of matches to be played in the second round of the group stage. But France are the only side to have qualified with a game to spare at this point. All sorts of history written, Rob. Uh, obviously, just our third win uh, at the World Cup finals. Graham Arnold, the first Australian manager. Uh, we've all stuck the boot in at times on Arnie, but he deserves this one thoroughly. Uh, first clean sheet since 1974. Matt Ryan also been the source of a little bit of criticism over the past couple of months. I think his distribution is probably as shaky as I've seen it, but uh, he, got, he got the job done on this day. Uh, and Martin Boyle as well. Uh, wasn't it magnificent to see Arnie with his arm around him in the uh, in the circle post-game? Uh, and let's take a little bit of a listen now to what Graham had to say on Martin post-match. We've moved him into the staff now as uh, OVM, official vibe manager, to keep all the boys up because he's just... One of the most fantastic blokes you'll ever meet in your life. And uh, even though he's got that injury, <clears throat> the most important thing for him is the rest of the boys. And uh, there was no way he wanted to go home and no way I wanted to send him home. He wants to stay, support and be part of it. And he, <clears throat> he deserves it more than anyone for what he did through the qualifying campaign. I think the one question probably is the fitness though, Rob, just the one change to the starting lineup, a shorter turnaround this time and given how good good they were and how they worked, uh, particularly in that second half. I think, yeah, they'll probably all roll out again, but that is uh, that is my one little concern, keeping me up at night. Yeah, I guess it, it is, but, um, but you know, we've got so many players playing in, in Europe these days that they, they are quick to the... Quick, uh, used to the quick turnaround. Uh, so no different for Australia than it uh, than it will be for Denmark. Germany as well were staring down the barrel of elimination. They trailed Spain one nil. Uh, Nicholas Fulkrug, though, Derek, a player who not long ago was playing in the Bundesliga two, found a, a thumping equaliser on eighty three minutes. So they remain bottom of that group, but it is a, a compact one after Costa Rica. Uh, set up in one of the, uh, the more extraordinary things I've ever seen. They set up the 5-4-1 and it was a strict 5-4-1. There were no overlapping fullbacks, Rob. They did not move and the one time they went forward, they managed to stick it in. So that's a big loss for, uh, a big big chance loss for Japan and all uh, all to play for still in Group E. I think I heard a statistic that um, that, that uh, win for Costa Rica uh, was the the record win for least touches in the penalty box in the history of, or the recorded history of World Cup football. They had two touches in in the penalty box and one of them was the goal. So they, they set up Derek not to be embarrassed uh, off the back mm. of an embarrassment, uh, but I think that is what you call an eight-goal swing. Kind of scuppered my plans for stoppage time. I had to rewrite my stoppage time notes this morning because uh, people who do follow all of our shows and there will be a stoppage time uh, released later in the week after my absence last week and my dark horse uh, was going to be Japan but that's been firmly put back in the box so stay tuned to stop his time to see who who I think uh, my dark horse for the tournament so so far could be but yeah I caught the end of the Germany game Germany were definitely in in the ascendancy from what I could see I'll, com- I'll um, confess I hadn't heard of Nicholas Fulkrug uh, from Werder Bremen but by the looks of it he seemed to give Germany a little bit of purpose and just a bit of someone to hit up front. Uh, you know, they keep playing with these kind of false nines like uh, Thomas Muller and uh, Kai Havertz. So Fulskrug uh, got there um, and it was a great finish as well. What a finish. I mean, there was, there was a lot to do. I know it was quite close to the goal, but you, you don't often see someone just lash it into the, the roof of the net there. The goalkeeper for Spain, absolutely no chance. And Germany still alive in the tournament. They've, they've still got work to do. They will still have to rely on other results. Um, but I think after that Japan display, as you said, maybe Spain will do Germany a favour and, and dispatch Japan, and that will put 
uh, Germany in the A1 position over Costa Rica, but that is a, a tantalising group, Willem. Plenty more World Cup to touch on with our guests and in World Cup corner, but we'll leave it aside for now. The big news outside uh, of Qatar and global football, I would say, is that the Glazer family have announced they're exploring strategic alternatives around the future of Man U. Uh, United Supporters Trust Communications Director Chris Rumford has welcomed the good news. He said that fans will have a spring in their step at seeing the for sale sign, and Gary Neville's weighed in as he does on all things United. He said the Glazers will never have a good exit, but they can smooth things out a little bit if they could at least engage with the fans over where they want to see the club go. Derek, we've heard these rumblings over the years, but this time things do look a little bit more solid. How do you see this? Do you see this playing out? The two Northwest neighbours, Liverpool and Manchester United, in the last couple of weeks have have indicated um, that that there is an opportunity to buy in at least and make an investment, if not take the whole club out and. That obviously is has all of the the nation states swirling around, uh, and you know in that case, I was seeing reports that uh, the Saudi government would be very open to uh, investment uh, in either of the clubs from from Saudi Arabia. There may well be um, some interest from from the Emirates and UAE uh, as well. So. Um, interesting timing. The Glazers always seem to have quite a strong hold on the club but i've read um got i've read reports that uh you know the glazers are probably starting to admit that with the likes of the saudi fund buying newcastle and and man united's sort of purchasing power power being eroded by these nation state back clubs that the only way for the club to be um to be competitive is to find fresh money and as we know the the Glazers, Glazers own Manchester United because it was it's heavily leveraged with a variety of loans, so they don't have the money to put back into the club, despite the fact that they spent a billion dollars or whatever it was over the last year. So that money's obviously run out, and uh, they're looking further afield. But we will also deal with this one in stoppage time, Willem. So those fans who want to hear more about this story and our thoughts then tune in stoppage time later in the week all right boys um we're going to talk to michael jacobson uh, danish international uh, he had a wonderful career with melbourne city and adelaide united in the uh, in the a league of course before then he, uh, he he played over 200 games in uh, in various uh, top flight uh, competitions around uh, europe and he's now in the indian super league in the twilight of his career He's not the most exuberant, excitable uh, uh, guest, but uh, when you listen to Michael, he calls it as he sees it. And uh, um, and if he doesn't say it, you can certainly read between the lines whenever you do speak to him. So uh, a chat with Michael Jacobson after the break to find out whether we have any hope and just what the Danish expect- expectations are uh, this Thursday morning. Next on Box to Box. Willa, willa, willa. Everybody's going to buy well, we always say we love cooking and eating on this show and our friends at Woods Herbs and Spices are always on hand for tips and advice on how to flavour and taste, add flavour and taste to your kitchen, changing the mood of your food. Now, Willem, um, this week I've got uh, the Qatar National Dish. Uh, now, you've been to the souk, uh, and have you eaten some of uh, uh, the, the local cuisine in, in the past uh, few days since we uh, we were recording? I have indeed, but I haven't actually tried any Qatari, Rob. There's plenty of uh, there's plenty of Arabic sort of stuff. There's Moroccan, there is uh, there's sort of Saudi food, but yeah, not the particularly the, the Qatari stuff, so please do inform me. Yeah, I will. Um, and Derek, you, you're a lover of Middle Eastern food, aren't you? Absolutely, can't get enough of that. Okay, well, this is called much bus. Okay, so it's it's common to various other nations in in the Gulf, but uh, it uses that spice mix, the baharat that I was telling you about last week. So, if you remember the cumin, the coriander seeds, the, uh, the ginger powder, cinnamon powder, turmeric powder, ground pepper. So it's a mixture and saffron, of course. So so it's a mixture of, of rice and and whatever uh, chicken or, or lamb or whatever protein that you like. So you've got to make a, a, a rice uh, dish in a similar way that you'd, you'd make a biryani if you're cooking an Indian food. But instead of having the classic garam masala flavours of Indian food, you're going to get the Middle Eastern flavours with rice and protein. And, and then you garnish it with nuts and raisins and things like that. So Willem, I want you to make note of this. By the time we talk next week, it's called Machbus. It's a rice dish, okay? So uh, you can uh, you can get down there uh, to the Sukhwakif and, uh, and try it out, all right? Done. On the list of things to do, I will report back. 
Okay, and if you're at home and you're listening and you want to get some Middle Eastern flavour into your kitchen, remember, refill all of the empty spice jars with Hoyt's value packs. You will be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. After Australia were taken to school by the French national side led by Kylian Mbappe, most of our realistic hopes for the remainder of the tournament started to fall off a cliff. But after the heroics of Harry Soutar and Mitchell Duke and the rest of the squad, we now have renewed hope. But that renewed hope is going to face a very harsh reality at 2am East Coast Australian time this coming Thursday when Australia take on the number 10 ranked side in the world, Denmark, and a man who knows from the inside of the dressing room, and he also knows Australia very well, having played over 150 A-League games in the country, is Michael Jakobsen. He's in India playing in the Indian Super League right now, and uh, we welcome Michael to the show. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yes, we're very well, Michael, but as I said to you off air, we're, we're feeling a little bit nervous. Uh, um, the expectation, though, from a Danish point of view, even though uh, the start to the tournament has been a little underwhelming, uh, surely ranked 10 in the world versus Australia's ranked 38, um, you, you uh, uh, would look at this fixture nine times out of 10 as one where Denmark has to win and they will win. Is there any sense that Denmark might be underestimating Australia going into this uh, or are they very wary I know the coach really well. Um, I used to play under him, and there was not such a thing as underestimating any opponent, um, especially not in the World Cup. Um, you saw last World Cup they played each other as well, and at that stage I said they're going to win for sure, um, and they drew. So it is very different going into a World Cup. Uh, this is a one-off game, um, and it's in the hands of Australia, to be honest. But as you said, I would say nine out of ten times Denmark will win. Having come off a, a semi-final, uh, uh, excellent performance in the Euros, the uh, the, the the wonderful story about uh, around Christian Eriksen um, and uh, his near-death experience, and the way that Casper uh, Hulmand and the, the squad bound together, Denmark seemed to be every country's second side in that tournament. Um, what do you put the the, the form drop off? down to uh, in, in uh, to start the World Cup uh, because it doesn't seem to be uh, the same cohesion in this uh, in this squad in the in the two games of uh, of the tournament so far well you saw a big reaction from from first game against Tunisia two or two against French I would say that they played a lot better uh, so the better they decide the better they perform um, the first the first game I think they didn't match Tunisia in on the physical level and I think that's where Australia can hurt Denmark as well if they came come out like like Tunisia did um, it would be hard if they don't match it from the beginning uh, because it gives a bit of extra hope um, you see a side come up and they like they can destroy the, the game for Denmark um, so I think that's the, the key point for, for Denmark that is to, to match Australia in, in togetherness the, the 100% effort or 110% effort that Australia will come with um, uh, I think if you look at the individual quality um, Denmark Denmark is superior that they, they they should be able to to create more than what they've done uh, against Tunisia uh, against France it's one of the best teams in the world um, there you struggle a bit more as Australia did as well um, so yeah it's, it's going to be very interesting uh, I, I think bottom line is if Denmark get on top um, then Australia will have a very hard time um, and hopefully we can we can manage to do that because I would like to see how far we can go in the tournament. I want to ask you about a couple of the guys I'm sure you know very well. You would have played with Craig Goodwin and Riley McGree for, for some time. Is there is there pride in seeing your ex-teammates on the international stage and how do you think they'll match up against the likes of, of Joaquin Anderson and Andreas Christensen? With Craig, you've shown um, France how, how dangerous you, you give him one chance and it might be one goal and you've got to assist. That's it bit of a lucky one uh, against Tunisia but it all counts uh, so there's he's a danger man um, set pieces crosses in, in general he's, he's, he's really strong uh, so they might need to be aware Riley he can um, I think last game he was a bit out of the game uh, for my majority of the time 
but yeah, again, he's very explosive. He's a, he's a man, if you give him too much time on the ball, um, he can make something happen. Um, I think they might need to not be too concerned about the individual. It's more the collective uh, they need to stop because that's yeah, that's a strong suit from Australia as I see it. Um, so yeah, if we can we if we can break them down that way, then um, we have a a fair chance of, of winning the game. And Mitch Duke, who led the line so well for Australia, you wouldn't have played with Mitch, but I'm sure you would have had a couple of physical battles against him uh, across the journey. What are his strengths as a striker and just how challenging uh, is it is it to play against him? And alternatively, how do you think uh, the Danish defenders can get over the top of him? He's a pain in the ass. Sorry for my language, but he's uh, he's very hardworking and he's, he's there all the time. Um, so if you give him any room, um, yeah, he'll pop up like he did the other day. Um, and that, as a as a team, to have a striker like that that works from the front all the time, it puts defenders under pressure. It uh, it makes their their life easier for the for the people behind. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's meant to have a, a player like that. Um, it might not always be be beautiful what he's doing, but he he's worked great. Uh, what he does for the team is uh, is amazing. So. Um, you put them under pressure. Uh, I think Denmark will be will be quite comfortable comfortable uh, playing around in the back um, and moving the ball up on the pitch. Uh, so he will have to to get a lot of meters in um, to keep them under pressure. Um, but yeah, um, as I said earlier, I think I think it's going to be very hard for Australia. Um, hopefully, um, but yeah, for sure they have the chance if they can put up the same effort as he did against Tunisia, um, also in the defending. Uh, I was very, uh, very pleasantly surprised to see uh, some of the defending they did. Um, if they do that against them, it's going to be very hard. Um, they defend with their life and they make it very, very hard to score against them. Ericsson is obviously the player everyone talks about, but there are uh, other lock pickers in the Danish team that should that should be able to you know, crack open that um, Australian defence. For those of our listeners that and maybe not as familiar with uh, the, the Denmark team. Who are the other key players that we should be looking out for? I think we have a very exciting one in, in, in Damsport. Um, he was the one that took over after the, the accident with, um, with Eriksson in, in, uh, in the Euros, and he did really well. Um, you would have seen him on the scene as well. Um, if, they can, if they can play him right and they can get him involved, uh, if Eriksson is not hitting his yeah, top level... Um, he can be one that will, will make it hard for, for Australia. Uh, I think Lindstrom is a very exciting kid that's coming through uh, through Germany. Um, he has some pace. He's um, very energetic. Um, he can he can make things uh, go well for Denmark as well. Um, um, we have Cornelius who is uh, up front. Uh, I don't know if he's going to start or not. Um, I think they took him out quite early because he had a yellow card already last game. Um, but he's one that can uh, really hurt defenders. He's not afraid of taking all the fights. Um, and then obviously, Braithwaite, you, you would know from, from La Liga, um, he's um, more um, a player that runs in behind. So I don't know. It depends on how Australia they, they're going to start. If they're going to start a bit lower, if it's going to open up for him, otherwise you need... Um, different kind of players so there, there's plenty of players to look out for um, and, and just in general the way that, that uh, Yulman he wants to he wants to play it's a, a lot of possession a lot of people on the ball um, and make it hard for the opponent to yeah, to get on the ball themselves Denmark came into the tournament as so-called dark horses that obviously performed well in the last Euros and were unlucky really to be beaten by England in the in the semi-final if Denmark get out of this group, and that that'll be a, um, a a sad state of affairs for for our Aussie listeners here. But if they do, um, what's the expectation for this? Obviously, the World Cup is a higher level of the game compared to the Euros. But could could Denmark get to semi-finals again? What what would the Danish public think is a uh, expectation for this team? I think the expectations are are really high. Um, also, the Nations League. Um, they played there, the group of Croatia and, and, and France, and those two games against France they didn't lose. Uh, and now they played them in the in the World Cup, and then they they lose. So it's it is a different scene. It's um it also comes with with experience. Um, we've been there before. 
um, it, it is it is as you said different games uh, and now also for for Australia it's um, it's either win or, or they can draw as well uh, Denmark they need to win they need to push for the win and, and they might still not be saved um, so it's now it's a while it's a final already for Denmark um, but how far can they go I hope they can go very far um, it's more enjoyable watching the World Cup when you're when your nation's in there um, going back to the start of the interview then they need to win this game 9 out of 10 I would say they they will have to win and last World Cup they didn't so this good time they, they, they have to <laughs> that's how I look at it. Before we let you go, though, uh, it's your first uh, season in the Indian Super League. It's been a pretty tough start to uh, to your time on the subcontinent. Seven uh, matches so far, and uh, and uh, your your club Northeast has yet to uh, to get off the scoreboard. Uh, how's your experience been so far? And uh, um, and and just tell us about the, the the club and the squad and and your expectations for when the the the, uh, the season will. Uh, Kick, you know the next round is this weekend. Uh, yeah, your thoughts so far on your time in India? Yes, you said it's been a tough start. It is. Um, it is very different to what I'm, what I've been used to. There's a lot of things here that is very different um, in regards to to quality, um, the the style of living, the, um, the football they play, um, the standard of uh, of of general like how you run a like how everything is run here, it is it is very uh, very very different. It's, it's quite hard to um, to explain. Uh, I, I think maybe yeah. Now after when I'm when I'm done with India, um, um, done with my soccer and stuff, I, I think it's an experience I'm going to look back on and and say all right, I'm maybe thankful and happy that I did this, um, so I could see how how it works in India as well. Um, because I thought there was a lot to work on in, in Australia uh, when I got there, which there is. Um, but then you go to to a place like India, and then you look at it in a completely different way. It looks like Australia, they are top professional. And yeah, so it is um, it is very different. Um, as you said, it hasn't been a good start at all. Uh, so there's a lot to work with. Uh, I knew before I went to India that this club was... Um, one of the smaller ones and they needed um, some experience because it's a very young squad and unexperienced team um, so they tried to get some foreigners in with some experience um, and, but we have had yeah, a lot of challenges on the way um, and we still have so it's, um, I, hope, uh, I hope we can turn it around um, as you said seven games no points at all This for me this is embarrassing but there's just a lot of work to do. Yeah, well, for a guy like you who's uh, had a, a glittering career with uh, trophies and championships and premierships galore, uh, I, I can see uh, uh, that, it, that it's pretty rough and uh, pretty raw on you. And you're, um, uh, well, you're a diplomat, let's put it that way. It's obviously uh, another level. Uh, below, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we uh, we wish you luck for the rest of your time uh, in India. And uh, look, it's, it's fair to say that uh, this is the, the towards the end of your career and no doubt uh, when you eventually uh, um, put uh, the boots and hang them up, uh, uh, mate, then uh, we might see you somewhere, uh, whether it's in Australia or Denmark, coaching and um, and uh, the career of uh, Michael Jakobsen will continue on uh, in a different manner. Thank you. Okay, stick around on Box to Box. We're going to go uh, Walter Willem's uh, current neighbourhood over there in Doha. Henry Winters somewhere around there from the Times. Uh, geez, England, uh, they've gone from one extreme to the other after the opening round of the tournament to uh, against Iraq, Iran, just absolutely flogging them to uh, uh, the extreme of... Uh, nil all draw against uh, the USA. Uh, what does Henry think? We're going to find out next on Box to Box. Okay, uh, this is time to talk Christmas uh, and it's time to talk Chemist Warehouse because right now you can get amazing deals on fragrances. Now, Willem, you haven't been going out there shopping for fragrances like we talked about last week. You were going to uh, ref- restrain yourself a little, weren't you? Yeah, no, there are fragrances left, right and centre in the Sukhwa Keef, but no restraint has been enacted, for sure. Yeah, well done. So you get the Calvin Klein Euphoria 50 mils Eau de Parfum for just $34.99, save $55 off. Derek, uh, surely uh, you're going to be shopping for some fragrances for your beautiful wife and mother. Estee Lauder, beautiful 30 mils. How is this for a deal? $49.99, save $50. Uh, incredible value, Rob. I'll be going down there tomorrow morning. 
excellent. And there's also you got worse, number one, 125 mil eau de toilette, 39.99, save $69 off the recommended retail price. And Mont Blanc Explorer, 60 mils eau de parfum for 49.99, save $73. Chemist Warehouse, where the great savings are every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is box to box, and as excited as we were to see Australia, well, unexpectedly, uh, get that uh, result against Tunisia, as we've just described, talked about with uh, Michael uh, Jakobsen, uh, formerly of the, the Danish national side, we were sort of equally surprised at the underwhelming performance of the uh, the English squad after. Um, pretty much tearing Iran apart. They were equally underwhelming against the USA uh, in that nil-all draw. And a man who uh, never pulls any punches at the best of times, let alone when uh, the English team is underwhelming, is the times Henry Winter. And we welcome Henry back to the show. How are you, mate? Hi, guys. How are you doing? Nice to see Australia doing well. I was down the uh, the Corniche uh, running in the morning, the Australian fans. They're brilliant down there. Yeah. You know, the sort of, you know, yeah, the atmosphere they bring. I mean, even if they're walking along individually, they just seem to be a one-man party or one-woman party. So, uh, mm. yeah, fair play to them. Yeah, I guess it's the thing, isn't it? When uh, when when you win a game once in twelve years, uh, you almost feel like your World Cup's been fulfilled. And then to to at least go into that final match of the group stage, um, and it's not going to be a dead rubber, uh, knowing that we had a two-all draw, or at least a draw with uh, Denmark in the last World Cup. You know, hope. Springs eternal. Yeah, I agree. And hope springs eternal, particularly in this tournament, because you get the impression that a lot of the players have just rushed from their National League games, whether it's the Premier League, mm-hmm. and their hair still drying as they rush out of the showers and they're rushing to the airports to join up mm-hmm. with their, their national teams to get on flights out here. And then only have sort of like four or five, maybe six at most, depending on when their first game is. Um, training sessions to, to, to try and gel. Obviously, a lot of them know each other from clubs and playing against each other, but still, that, it's not completely surprised me that we have had a slight sort of roller coaster with results. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that roller coaster uh, was a good example of the, the two games that England have played so far. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned, you know, you, you, you don't pull punches. And, and sometimes there is, you know, in, with all countries, uh, uh, something of a sycophantic press towards the, the manager, but equally, there are a few that, um, that that take the gloves off, and uh, I, I read an article that, that you wrote just before uh, the tournament started. That the time for turning words into action has come closer, and, and there's still time for one last statement. And uh, now, um, in so far as the statements being made uh, by England so far, they just uh, they seem a, a little bit erratic and unpredictable. That uh, on, on the one hand, we see all of the very best of, of England with Jude Bellingham, uh, uh, you know, uh, showcasing all of the, the, the late skill that we know that he had and uh, and goals galore. But then uh, we, we go out against the USA and uh, and it, it just seemed to be a shell of that side. It was very flat and it's very frustrating because you look at this squad you know, you've looked at England squads down the years and in terms of technical talent, in terms of there's so much talent in there. You look at a Bellingham, you look at a Phil Foden, you know, he's won four titles. He plays for Pep Guardiola, uh, you know, who, who trusts him to start ahead of sort of, you know, maybe bigger names. You look at Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's won the Premier League, who's won the Champions League. OK, he got caught out by Vinicius Junior in the final in Paris and he can get caught out defensively. But if you want to, I mean, Brazil would play him. Brazil would start Trent Alexander-Arnold. They would love that ability to launch defence into attack with one of those 60-yard passes, whether down the line to Saka, if he's playing out there, or whether a switch to an overlapping Luke Shaw or to Raheem Sterling. I just think England have the talent, and maybe it's a mindset in the manager, whether he's going to use, um, unleash these players, whether as a former centre-half, Gareth Southgate, maybe his focus is, is on defence. To be fair to him, he's been completely vindicated on his support for Harry Maguire, who's been probably England's player of the tournament. But you're right, it was frustrating to go from the highs of a 6-2 against an admittedly distracted Iran team to a draw against, I mean, you have to give credit to them. I mean, the Americans, they got their tactics right. They squeezed all the space around Bellingham. He wasn't able to get box to box. Declan Rice wasn't able to be as influential. They pretty much allowed Stones and Maguire to, to have the ball, thinking that they wouldn't hurt them. And Tyler Adams, best player on the pitch, Christian Pulisic had a point to prove to, to the English because it's not really worked so well for him at, at Chelsea, playing in a better position that suits him more with, uh, with, with his national team. So, yeah, now England have got 
the small matter of Gareth Bale, who'll certainly be fired up like a dragon on overtime for tomorrow night. Harry Kane obviously hasn't managed to to to, to start on the um on uh, sorry has managed to score uh, yet, and obviously had his injury doubts. Uh, Gareth is a loyal man, as you said. He kind of likes who he likes. So, is there any danger of uh, not danger for him being dropped? But like, is there a case for? some more squad rotation, particularly in the strikers with the other people that England have brought? Well, it's a good point. I mean, that's one of the long-term frustrations or longer-term frustrations of England not winning against the Americans because they would have rested Harry Kane. Harry Kane needs a rest. That ankle, that right angle, which took a knock the other night, and there's always a sensitivity about Kane and his ankles historically. So it's a big call by Southgate to say, right, I'm starting Callum Wilson or Marcus Rashford through the middle. And Harry, you're just going to have to rest up, sort your ankle out. When England aren't guaranteed, and they do need a, a finishing top and uh, and also progressing. And Harry Kane also has one eye, even though he's a huge team man, he's got one eye on Wayne Rooney's record. He's two goals short of it, three goals from, uh, from breaking it. And he'd love to do that at a World Cup. So it'll be a brave man in Gareth Southgate if he leaves Harry Kane out against Wales. Yeah, you, and you said that you've been going to training. You've obviously been in the stadium. Like from an England point of view, what have the conditions been like there in Qatar com- compared to to other other um, other World Cups? Uh, what are England's training facilities like, hotels, and 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 the atmosphere in the grounds as well? I mean, these are all challenges that not just England but all teams ha- have to face. But how do you see it from the England point of view? The atmosphere in the grounds has been pretty good. I mean, I think FIFA have got a, an issue which they haven't admitted publicly, but they must do privately, that some of the tickets haven't been taken up. I think they've been bought by expats and then just simply not taken up. Or, I mean, there's more than anecdotal evidence that some fans with tickets, and I know in, in the case of one quite prominent England supporter who got to the airport uh, in the UK and said, actually, can I justify going to a country whose values that personally for him, um, he doesn't believe in. So he turned around and went home so that, you know, there will be empty seats there at games. I mean, a lot of England fans out here are just absolutely loving it um, because they've got all these games on the doorstep. I mean, you have to go, okay, what is it? 40 miles, 70 K to the North, to the Albight stadium uh, where England played the other night. But otherwise, everything's, you know, it's like the old subway series in baseball. You can get everywhere by Metro. The roads are fairly lively, particularly when um, some of the, uh, the drivers from other countries are on there. It's like wacky races weaving in and out of the lanes. But the atmosphere has been good outside the ground, particularly in the souks. I mean, the bazaars in Doha have just been fantastic. You've just had fans of all nations all in their, their finery, amazing clothes, flags, great noise. No alcohol, which is a, another debate entirely, but there's no edge in the air. There's no, with England fans, there's always beer going up in the air. You wouldn't throw a beer up in the air here at, um, I think it's about 12, 13 pounds a pint. Uh, what's that by Aussie standards? It's about so sort of $23 a, a, a pint. I mean, you almost need, a, it's almost cheaper to fly here than to have a drink here. Um, and obviously you're restricted from, from where you, you can drink certain hotels, certain fan parks at certain times. But the atmosphere is terrific. But I think you also got, particularly with the what I would call the one love countries, like who wanted to wear the armbands sort of Denmark and England, countries like that, Wales. Um, there is this awareness of the fans going into the stadium that there is there is blood on the walls of these stands, of these great structures, and that migrant workers did die. There's a huge tragedy there. Price was paid by the people of Nepal, the people of India who sent their, their sons over here to work. So, yeah, people are, people are very aware of that. But it, look, it's a tournament of two halves because some of the football and the atmosphere have just been fantastic, but there's always been that element of at what cost. Wales seemingly have nothing to lose and everything to gain. It hasn't been probably what they you know they anticipated or would have would have liked from their first two games. Like beyond Gareth Bale, who will always just be a menace where wherever he is. But where else could you think they could cause England problems? Well, they start Kiefer more up front. I think he's a, maybe he's a type of um, attacker that Harry Maguire actually quite likes dealing with in terms of. He's a sort of big, robust number nine. 
and Maguire is more vulnerable to sort of players, smaller, nippier players coming at him at pace. So I think there are issues there. But Gareth Bale is huge on this because this will probably be his last game for Wales. And he, the Welsh fans out here are fantastic. The way they sing the national anthem, you, you know, if you if you if you're walking through the streets, you'll have men of men of Harlech sort of coming out of a Bedouin tent, and they're all having a sing song in there and, and sharing sort of sodas or whatever. And their, their fans are brilliant. Ramsey's coming to the end of his career as well. He'll he'll want to prove himself. You know, they've got. I thought uh, Roden's been playing well. They've obviously got an issue in in goal, but. They'll absolutely be up for it. And Southgate, look, Southgate's played in these games. He'll he'll know how difficult this is going to be. But England should prevail and should go through as group winners. Do you get the sense just generally with this this World Cup, is there a gap closing between the so-called top teams and potentially the, the the rest there? Would I think about the Japan result over Germany? Obviously, Japan then went and lost lost their game to an unfancy team, and of course the uh, the Saudi game. Uh, against Argentina, do you, do you feel like the rest of world football is kind of catching up with the so-called bigger nations? Well, I hope so. I mean, they're clearly invested more. I mean, you look at the Saudis, how much they've invested in the sport. I think also with dual nationality, you're having a lot of individuals moving between countries, um, which can strengthen other countries. I think it's good that the sort of the traditional powers are being challenged. I think maybe when we look at the, the final eight, they'll all be the uh, the usual suspects. But it would be great to see, you know, maybe a Saudi Arabia in there or or, uh, or another team. Uh, you know, the Americans are well coached. They've got a very young team. They're clearly building for uh, the World Cup on the home soil and Canadian and Mexican soil. But yeah, that would be brilliant. I, but I do think there's been inconsistency in the group stage because there's been so little preparation. I mean, England didn't even have a warm-up game, you know, not even anything behind closed doors. And I think that has... Okay, so they started well, but you know, I think with other teams as well, there has been that inconsistency because of the lack of uh, prep time. Yeah, and looking at England's uh, likely route through the tournament, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but um, I think they're going to be playing the group containing uh, Netherlands, Senegal, and, and Ecuador, and Ecuador, another one of those uh, teams that seem to be performing beyond expectations in the tournament England do have history with them in the World Cup that that being said I mean this is this looks as kind of good as it could get from an England point of view a potentially you know not exactly vintage Netherlands team a Senegal team without its main player is you know if England can kind of get back to more towards the Iran performances in in their scale as you think getting to the the quarterfinals is a real possibility for them? I think the quarterfinals has always been the cut for England in this. I think if, and then the chances are, if all the sort of seedings in inverted commas work out, then England will run into France, the world champions. And we've, we've seen how good they are. I think they're the teams who have won both their, uh, their opening games. So I think they are, they're, they're a threat. And then as England go out to France, then I think people might accept that as long as England have had a go. And I think Southgate will probably walk after that. Um, but yeah, as ever with England, we try to plot our path to, uh, to, to, to towards the final, um, ignoring sort of potential roadblocks on the way. I think Senegal, because of their athleticism, because of their skill, because they've sort of pride and drive, there'll be a test. The Dutch will be a test with uh, Van Gaal. Will absolutely love to put one over on the English. They've got some good young players as well, as well as the more experienced like Virgil Van Dijk. They'll know the English well. They tend to keep the ball well as well. So you know that can be an issue for uh, for, for England. And as you say, Ecuador, Ecuador, you know, there will be a test as well. So and the good thing from England is that they, I think they play at, they play earlier in the day tomorrow. So England will know who their potential opponents are. But again, they, they shouldn't be too clever. Say if they want to avoid the Dutch and the Dutch finish um, elsewhere in their group, England still just need to gun it against Wales. They have to give everything. They have to go on the front foot. They have to regain the momentum. They have to start bedding in players like Foden and developing this, uh, this team. I think you could probably pick eight of Southgate's starting team, but they're still maybe two or three places up for grabs. So uh, it'd be nice just to see England sort of get a, a get a settled team in. And it's just unfortunate that Kane, who needs a rest, 
is, is unlikely to get one tomorrow. Before we let you go, Henry, you, you know, you've quite rightly referenced uh, during the course of this conversation uh, uh, the, uh, the the backdrop, um, the foredrop, if you like, uh, to this entire tournament being the, you know, the 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 the, the, the migrant worker. Uh, uh, issues um and um and lgbtq plus uh issues do, do you feel on on what you've seen so far and uh, and you know that with the the, the beer um backflip being a metaphor for all of this that that we should have any hope that that once the caravan rolls on that that there will be any real and lasting change uh, um in qatar after the tournament's over i wouldn't hold your breath i think that uh, as you say when the caravan rolls on when the media focus moves elsewhere, I, I think I think the Qataris have already shown that they're not going to yield. They weren't going to yield on alcohol. They weren't going to yield on you know, rainbow T-shirts. Um, so, no, I think, sadly, that uh, it's something that FIFA are going to have to address. And we know how the World Cup was awarded. I think Australia were in for it at the same time. And, you know, I wrote a couple of pieces saying, that Australia is a natural country for it to be taken to. And then all the people you talked to around FIFA were going, well, kickoff times would, would be an issue for the sort of, you know, the Western, you know, the, Europe, well, the European markets. And I think, well, you've got to think broader than that because the World Cup can't belong for hosting reasons to a, a France, a Germany or an England or a US. It has to be rotated around the world because the World Cup self-evidently belongs to the world. So I think it was good that it stepped out and... I think if it had been a Gulf World Cup, I think that would have been slightly more interesting than having it just in, in one country. I think the way FIFA works, they'll go for the money and it'll probably be a, a you know, probably be Uruguay and Argentina in 2030 and then maybe China longer term, but it should go to an Australia. I think you've got the Women's World Cup next mm. year with New Zealand as well. And okay, there's going to be a lot of traveling there, but I think that's, that's fantastic. You know, if, if, I mean, I've got a young daughter if I was living in Sydney or in Auckland, see of these great lionesses from our perspective or players from around the world coming, what excitement does that give that young girl growing up? And then she may go on and become a, a great player for, uh, for, for Australia. But you know what? I come back to your point. You are a great sporting country. You've got so many other opportunities. So the fact that your Australian team are here within a fighting chance mm. of 90 minutes of getting into the knockout stage is a fabulous sporting achievement. Mm. And look, you guys understand it, but I hope everyone in Oz really appreciates what's being achieved out here by your team. Thanks, Henry. Henry Brilliant. from The Times uh, joining Cheers, us guys. on Box to Box. Thank you, Henry. Okay, stick around. Walk up corner after the break. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. It is World Cup Corner and Willem, uh, you over, over there in Doha. We've got a couple of things we want to get through. Uh, we did think that Edge might have uh, joined us this week, but the world's busiest man um, continues to be uh, uh, exceptionally busy. And uh, and you, you got uh, the big bear hug when you arrived. I did. I got the bear hug when I arrived. I got the bear hug when the soccer was won. He's been affectionate. If you can find him, he'll give you some love. There's no stress on that front, but uh, it's just uh, it's just few and far between actually seeing me, uh, the big fella. Now, um, before we uh, we get stuck into the, the rest of World Cup Corner, you, you did have, a, as I said off the top of the show, a little fireside chat with him. It sounded like when we listened, uh, and when our listeners do listen to this, there's uh, there's quite an audience um, in in the uh, the room that you're in. So so where were you to set the scene as our listeners listen to this chat? And who, who was around you uh, as they hear the, the sort of the, the burblings and, and mumblings of people in the background? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. We were just in uh, in Michael's office, just in the hotel there where they run the, uh, where he runs a lot of his admin for the Grenegade Army out of, and there were just a few a uh, few family members floating through as we uh, as we had our chat. We are here at the Sea Apartments in Loose Sail, North Doha, and would you believe it, I've found him. We call him the world's busiest and not for no good reason. He is flat out, but he's managed to find some time in his very, very busy schedule to have a chat. Michael Edgley, I'm going to welcome you back to your own show. Welcome back to Box to Box. Oh, it's awesome to be back, Willem, and I've been uh, finding time before I go to sleep most nights to catch a bit of the podcast. I've been enjoying the, uh, the, the shows that you guys have been pumping out, but... Um, yeah, it's been an experience over here, and I must admit it was awesome to see you. We, I, I gave you a big hug uh, after yesterday's big win, and uh, it's been it was, it's been an amazing well, it's been an amazing journey. But what about the last twenty four hours? How good has that been? Last twenty four hours have been phenomenal. There is plenty to get through, but before we get to the soccer rules, I want to get to the important stuff. 
a little bit of footage of you floating around on the internet. <laughs> yes. In the Saudi, t- oh, sorry, not the Saudi, the Qatari TV studio, Qatari television was the network. The, uh, the dub was over the top, so we couldn't tell you, uh, so what, uh, couldn't find out what you, were, what you were talking about. What was going on there? How did that come about? And what did you have to say to the locals? Well, I have, obviously, um, the way the organisation's structured here, they have a thing called the Supreme Committee, which is sort of the organising committee that makes all the decisions. And I had been leaning heavily on them over the past month in particular with uh, one of our uh, rented apartment buildings been having a few challenges. So I'd been leaning heavily on the Supreme Committee to assist us to get... Uh, repairs done in time, uh, which they did, um, and the Supreme Committee then let heavily on me to go on television and uh, just give my thoughts on, uh, for the Qatari local people, uh, the Qataris, uh, what it's been like uh, for me working in Qatar, uh, you know, making preparations for hundreds of people to different stakeholders from the Federation. So I, I did that as a quid pro quo with my colleague at the Supreme Committee and um, a little did I know, the first people to pick it up were you and Rob. Absolutely, no, not much gets past us, Michael. Um, just take us through your 2022, the time spent abroad, the months that you spent here, firstly for the qualifying couple of matches against the UAE uh, and then Peru as well. You then dipped back home for a little bit, but then you were pretty much back here. So how many months have you actually spent uh, away from home, away from your family this year to put this all together? I've been... Um um, really, uh, probably nine or ten months of the last 18 months has been spent over here in Qatar making preparations and making arrangements. It's been really challenging. Um, you know, Qatar does not have an event industry, so uh, this event has really been bootstrapped from the, from the ground up. They don't have, you know, existing event companies that provide support services, whether that's transport through events, uh, accommodation providers, etc. You know, it's just been a Herculean task for the government. It's not been easy. It's been really difficult for them. Um, and obviously for people like me that are operating in that environment, it, it's been challenging. So we've had to invest a lot of time to get it right. Uh, and, you know, most things are going well, but there are still a few challenges that we're all experiencing on the ground. Um, and, you know, we just deal with them. But... You know, the event is so fantastic, and we saw the power of the event yesterday, didn't we? did indeed. So the Green and Gold Army's been running through to, uh, since 2001, but this is the first time that you've had uh, the, the friends and families of the, of the national team officially tied in with your program, officially that is. So what's that been like to experience that up close and see what it means to the families? That's been a great privilege because um, um, sort of watching the families in close proximity over the last uh, week or so, you, you get to realise the significant role they play in um, supporting their loved one who's a member of the Socceroos um, from well-being just through to uh, you know being there when they need them so the families are crucial to the success of the Socceroos program and um, that was it's become very evident to me that that's the case and the support that the uh, the mums the dads the girlfriends there's a couple over here now <laughs> the ones that the support they provide should not be underestimated because um, without uh, that support um, you know and, and the players really you know the families and their, their girlfriends and their friends, they're the ones that they're really connected to on the journey and playing for. So there's a lot of emotion flying around. And, and last night after the game, uh, the families and the players got to, some, got to spend some time together at a dinner at the Doha Golf Club. And uh, it was just very special to see the bond between the families and the players. And also the bond between multiple families and players, because obviously they've shared a lot of national team duties uh, over the last few years. Yeah, it's very... Yeah, it's been an eye-opener for me and uh, just how significant the families are to the success of the team. You've shared a little bit with uh, with Robin and Derek and myself just how challenging your last few months have been, but we flicked a couple of messages last night that a day like yesterday when you get to see all the friends and families come in and you've got your own daughter here, and with you as well, that makes it all, all worth it, hard work. Uh, oh, culminating in a day like yesterday. But also the fans, you know, there's just a couple of fans just walked in the door here, have been on a lot, of, a lot of our tours, and, you know, the last few World Cups have been challenging from a performance perspective, so for... Some of those fans that have been on our tours, and obviously the families, are people that are closely connected to the team, but you know the people that love uh, love the Socceroos that have been you know part of that journey. Uh, yesterday was a simple reward, but Willem, you know, let's uh, we won't get carried away. We know we've got a big game against Denmark in a couple of days' time, but uh, let's not get carried away. But you know, this tournament could open up for us if the Saudi can Saudis can finish on top. Imagine if we get to play Saudi Arabia in the uh, round of 16. That's a game that we would. Uh, 
Oh, it's a game that I know the players would set themselves for and think they're a real chance. On the pitch, how are you feeling ahead of uh, ahead of Wednesday? We've got a day less to recover, and having had a look at yesterday's performance, you'd think that probably uh, Sutar, Irvine, Moy, Lecky, and Duke would all have to uh, all have to back up. Spoke to Laurie McKinnon earlier this morning. He said that he's the coach. He's putting them all out there. This is as important as it gets. How do you think we're shaping up ahead of what is a massive game against Denmark? Well, yeah, the core of the team. I think that the central defence, Aaron Moy, Jackson Irvine, and Mitchell Duke. You know that uh, they are the backbone of the team. Um, I think they'll have to go again. I, but he's got some options you know, on the bench. We saw him with a lot of substitutions yesterday. Uh, I think they're all significant opportunities for players to get game time, but he'll have to use the bench at some point, and there'll have to be some changes in the starting lineup at some point. Matthew Leckie's done a power of work as well. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the selection is and just how they're recovering. Excellent, excellent. All right, mate. Well, what else have you got for us? Iran manager Carlos Kiros. Wants Jurgen Klinsmann to stand down from the BBC. Importantly, Klinsmann is also on FIFA's technical study group. Let's have a listen uh, to what Klinsmann had to say uh, following Iran's late dramatic tuna win over Wales. That's their culture. That's their way of doing it. And that's why Carlos Queiroz, he fits really well. The Iranian national team. And that's he struggled in uh, South America. He failed with Colombia to qualify. Then he failed with uh, Egypt to qualify as well. And then he went back right before the World Cup now and guided uh, Iran where he worked already for a long, long time. So so this is not uh, by coincidence. This is all purposely. <laughs> this is just part of their culture. That's how they play it. And they worked the referee. They, you saw the, the bench always jumping off, always working the fourth uh, lines, the linesman and the fourth referee on the yeah. sideline. Constantly and they're in their constantly in their ears. Um, they're constantly in your face on the field. I mean, uh, Kiefer Moore probably will tell you lots of stories after this game today. He had a, he had a lot of of uh, little incidents uh, mm. that we did not even see out here. This, this is their culture, and they, they kind of make you lose your focus, they make you lose your concentration and what's really important to you. So Derek, in brief, part of their culture to act in an unsportsmanlike manner, uh, there was a, a personal drive-by on Kiros there, uh, and also the assertion that a European referee would have handled it better than the Guatemalan referee. I think it was just very lazy punditry on his part. He made some extremely... Um, large generalizations about Middle Eastern football, which I think a lot of people found kind of quite distasteful and and disrespectful. As you said, he was talking about essentially saying that the Iranians sort of have the dark arts down pat. I mean, I think Kiros uh, responded in his own series of tweets that no one had the dark arts more down pat than than Jurgen Klinsmann over the years, not you know, not one to shy away from a, a diving opportunity. So I think he took a bit of chagrin uh, at that. And yeah, I just you know he was kind of implying that Kiros and the the coaching staff are kind of working the referees, working the fourth referees um, all the time. I think Klinsmann has come out and said that he was almost that he was trying to be complimentary to say that you know they are. You know they're very clever in the fact that they're they they see that as a, a way of, of gaining advantage on the game. But I think unfortunately the the horse had bolted, and I just think he'd made some quite you know distasteful comments and uh, and um, sort of bordering on xenophobia, really. So I think Clinton does need to have a have a look at himself there. Uh, he probably doesn't need to be sacked by the BBC, but he probably won't be given any more Iran games to cover. That's for sure. Well said. And moving on to the final item on the agenda of the show, and it centres around, uh, well, I've seen him described as the world's best boxer. I'll have to consult you on that, Derek. Would you say Canelo Alvarez fits that bill? Because I personally hadn't heard of him, but that is that is definitely my ignorance. Yeah, outside of um, a handful of heavyweight boxers, uh, there's one person I would not want to offend on planet Earth. It would be Sol Canelo Alvarez. He is an absolute monster in the ring. He's a kind of middleweight Mexican, foot toe to toe, some of the hardest guys in boxing. He's teak tough from the streets. And that is not a person that you want uh, against you. And certainly, yes, one of the finest boxers of his generation. 
Well, he's told Lionel Messi, one of the finest footballers of his generation, to pray to God that he, Alvarez, doesn't find him Messi. Uh, after footage emerged post their win against Mexico of Messi with a Mexican jersey at his feet when they were carrying on in the, uh, in the rooms post-win, he's alleged Messi was cleaning the floor with our jersey and flag. Uh, there was a thread of five or so tweets saying that he still respects Argentina, but he does not respect Mexico. Uh, sorry, he still respects Argentina, but he doesn't respect uh, Messi. Rob, this has got to be headed for the Hall of Fame of overreactions. Nothing to it for mine. He took his boot off and the uh, the jersey was on the floor. All right, mate. Well, listen, uh, we're going to let you go. Um, you continue to enjoy it, mate, and uh, and cheer extra loud for all of us, mate. Uh, you've been doing a wonderful job for us uh, carrying on with... Uh, your work on the podcast uh, whilst you've been over there in uh, in Qatar, and uh, uh, so you're heading off to as we record to um, to a game. Uh, pretty much the moment you put down the, the headphones. Yes, right this minute I'm on the train from Lusail to Al Wakra down to Al Janoub again. It's Cameroon against uh, Serbia. Looking forward to seeing a game. Derek, you'd say will be probably characterised by some pretty strong, strong strikers. Vincent Abubakar and to- Karl Toko at Cambi at one end and. Uh, Mitrovic up the other, so hopefully we can see some uh, some brawny goals into the back of the net. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm jealous, Willem. I'd love to. I think once you get there, um, I just think that's the unique feature of this World Cup, isn't it? It's not like it's the opposite in Russia when you were last there. You can't just sort of pop on the train to head down to Katerinburg or whatever to watch the next game. But in this one, if you're there, and by all by looking at it, there are plenty of seats around the stadium. So yeah, I'd be filling my boots to try and. You can pretty much just watch wall-to-wall football, can't you? Yeah, the announced stadium capacities have frequently been over what the stadium actually holds. There's been some, it's just yet another shambles in the organisation, really. They're saying that they're counting tickets sold, including those that have been sold on the resale platform. So, yeah, some uh, some extraordinary things going on day-to-day here. But, mm. no, good to be inside the stadiums, that's for sure. All right, mate. Enjoy enjoy today and uh, enjoy the uh, the big match on Thursday morning our time. Derek, thank you again, my friend. Until we do no stoppage time later in the week. Yeah, no, looking forward to that. Thanks very much. Excellent. And uh, Damo, uh, Damien Tardio, we're back there pressing the buttons and making it all sound good. Uh, thank you as well. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoy this uh, uh, upcoming match as much as we all want to. Uh, I know we had uh, Michael Jakobson on earlier on and, uh, you know, one uh, in 10 chance means that we're at 10% chance of winning, of course. So uh, I give us a little bit more hope than that. So uh, hopefully this time we next week when we uh, we reconvene, we're talking about more heroics for the Socceroos. Please subscribe to Box to Box, Box to Box stoppage time and box to box offside wherever you get your podcast tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on twitter like us on facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game